Good morning, church. How are we? Sorry, my mic was not on. Good morning. Uh, y'all, my name is Liam Hardy. I get the privilege of serving as the worship pastor here at, Matt, or at uh, Connection Church Athens, and I'm so glad uh, to be here with you this morning. Um, and thankful for the opportunity to come and uh, open God's Word uh, this morning. And y'all, I just want us to hear from God as we get into the book of Acts chapter 4, where is where we're going to be this morning. If you want to turn with me, Acts 4, uh, verses 13 through 22, Acts 4, 13 through 22. Uh, we as a church, like uh, Dustin said, this has been our 10th week um, walking through the book of Acts, and we believe that God has given us this book and a record of the early church uh, that serves as a model and a blueprint for us as we start this church. We want to be an Acts type of church, and so as we've been walking through this book, we're just learning what it means to be living sent for God on mission and being his church, his body of believers. I mean, as we've walked through the, the passages um, verse by verse, we've had different topics or different themes that we've looked at along the way. Uh, one of those being the Holy Spirit. Y'all remember we talked a good deal about the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, and just buckle in because he's going to be a big theme throughout the rest of the book. Um, one time, Dustin spent a whole message on baptism, talking about repenting and being baptized. And how cool was it for us to see the fruit of that message last week when we saw five people right here in our little portable pool get baptized? Wasn't that cool? Can we just celebrate that and what God's doing in our church? It's exciting. It's exciting. Repent and be baptized. Another theme that we had was uh, miracles. We talked about signs and wonders and their role in the gospel. I don't know if y'all remember that as well. Um, we have a theme or a topic this morning, and if I could give it to you in one word, it would be boldness. We're going to talk this morning about what does it mean to be biblically bold? What does it mean to live boldly for Christ? What do you think of when you think of boldness or you think of someone who is bold? I'll tell you what I don't think of or who I don't think of. I don't think of Liam Hardy. Because Liam Hardy is not a bold person. Liam Hardy's never been a bold person, and he never will be a bold person. In fact, as a kid, I was a scaredy-cat kid. And I was going to make a list of all the things I was scared of as a kid, and I made that list, and it was really long, and I was going to share it on Sunday. When I saw the list, I said, there's no way I can share that with everybody. But can I tell you about one thing I was scared of as a kid? Can I tell you all? I was scared of monsters in my room. Anybody else scared of monsters in my room? Scared of monsters. It was not under my bed, I remember distinctly. I was scared of monsters in my closet. And I expressed my fear to my parents and said, Mom, Dad, I'm scared of monsters in my room. And I should have told them a long time ago because they had a quick and easy fix available for me right then. And it blows my mind today why anybody pays for home security because of what they told me. And I'm going to share this with you. This is a free secret, some parenting advice if you've got a kid who's uh, scared of monsters in their bed. All they told me that I had to do is get a monster stick. You guys know what a monster stick is, right? It's this household item. You can pick one up at Walmart, and it has magical powers that if you have it in your room, monsters cannot possibly get to you. And it just so happens I brought a monster stick this morning. Would you guys like to see it? Okay, okay. Here it is. This is the monster stick. If you have one of these in your room, then monsters cannot possibly get to you. It's very easy to use. You can put it under your bed. You can put it in your closet. Mine, me and Olivia have ours on the dresser right now. <laughs> Guys, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm just kidding. It's on the nightstand, and you can just pick up one of these, and you'll be completely protected from monsters. I know during COVID, we were running out of the travel size, um, but those are back in stock now, um, so you can grab one of those as, as well. I know now that my parents just wanted me to shut up and go to sleep, and I had an irrational fear, and they gave me an irrational solution. 
Um, I think we know even as little kids when we're scared of things like heights or roller coasters or monsters under the bed. I think we know that our fears are irrational, and we know our parents are not tucking us in at night and then walking out into the hall saying, you think he'll survive? You know, we, they're not doing that. Our fears are irrational. Um, but we tell ourselves something like this to make ourselves feel better, even when we're scared of things as a little kid. We say things like this. I know I'm scared of monsters in my room, but when I'm older and I'm big and strong and I'm an adult and I'm 13, then I won't be scared of anything. Y'all, 13 has come and gone for me, and not only did I realize I was not fully grown, but I was still afraid of things. Might have been different. Now I'm 24, and I realize that fear doesn't go away, it just evolves. And especially in our spiritual lives, y'all, there's always going to be something that is holding us back, that, it, that is keeping us in fear so that we will not live sent for our Savior. There's always going to be an excuse. And, y'all, we have to be bold. We have to be bold. Why? Because last week, Dustin's first point of Acts 4 was that as followers of Christ, persecution is inevitable. We have to be bold because the persecution is inevitable. We see this model in the book of Acts. The first three chapters, everything was going so well. Peter was preaching. The Holy Spirit had come. People were being saved. People were being baptized. And then in Acts 4, what happens? Peter and John are arrested. As followers of Christ, persecution is inevitable. And therefore, we have to be bold. Peter and John are very bold in Acts 4, the first 12 verses. This is where we were uh, last week. Peter and John are arrested for preaching the gospel, and then they're brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court. It was the religious leaders, and they held the power of life and death. They could have stoned Peter and John if they wanted to. And Peter and John are bold in the face of that opposition. Think about it. They're arrested for preaching the gospel, then they're tried for preaching the gospel, and what do they do during the trial? They preach the gospel. That's a pretty bold move. Matt, that's like me getting arrested for stealing and then trying to swipe the judge's watch during the trial. That's pretty bold. And that's what they do. They preach the gospel boldly in the fire in the face of opposition. Just notice verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4, kind of giving a running start into our passage today. They preach boldly. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Peter and John are bold. They're bold in the face of the persecution and the opposition. Y'all, I believe that something like this is going to happen for us as a church. I don't know if you feel in Connection Church Athens there's a lot of uh, momentum. Things are going well. People are being baptized. The gospel is being preached. But if we truly believe that the persecution, the opposition, the trial, the temptation, if we believe it's inevitable, I think time well spent this morning is for us to talk about how we're going to meet it head on. And, you know, I believe in our own power and my own will. This is not going to be a message about just, you know, work harder and try better because on our own power, y'all, we all have a breaking point where we will run and hide and curl up with our monster stick, and we will not live boldly for Christ. And this morning, as we've talked several times through the book of Acts, that this, this kind of boldness that comes, that Peter and John exemplify in this passage, it's not going to come from us. It's going to come from the Lord. Let's read our passage together, uh, Acts 4, 13 through 22. Now, as they observed the confidence or boldness of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. 
And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you, rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word this morning that we have this example of Peter and John being bold for you, God. And I pray by, by your power, Lord, you would guide us into your truth and you would protect us from error and misunderstanding, God. You would be magnified and glorified in this place. And God, I pray you would show us this morning what it means to live biblically bold for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Peter and John are bold in the face of the opposition. I've got three points this morning, and they're going to be three questions that we're going to ask of this passage and ultimately of our lives this morning as we think for us, what does it mean to be biblically bold as a church? And the first question that I want to ask this morning is where does your boldness come from? Where does your confidence or your boldness come from? And I'm going to argue this morning that confidence or boldness has to have a source we're confident or we're bold in something. In verse 13, we're going to spend a good bit of time uh, there this morning, chapter 4, verse 13. It's an interesting verse in this narrative because it's written from the perspective of the Sanhedrin. It's written from the perspective of those Jewish rulers. Let me read verse 13 one more time. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. The Sanhedrin do four things in verse 13. They observe Peter and John. Then they understand something about them. They're amazed. And they start to recognize them as having been with Jesus. So what's the first thing they do? They, they, they hear the sermon, right? Peter and John do not talk to the Sanhedrin like the Sanhedrin are normally used to being talked to, right? <laughs> Usually, you know, the, the Sanhedrin were the religious leaders. They were the ones who were in charge of teaching the law of God and interpreting the law of God. They were the experts, and Peter and John did not treat them like the experts, did they? No, they boldly proclaimed the gospel. They accurately used the Old Testament, Psalm 118, to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. And they preached boldly, and this is not a usual thing for the Sanhedrin to witness, and so they begin to try to discern the source of Peter and John's boldness. They observe the boldness of Peter and John, and they try to figure out where's this boldness coming from, and they recognize them as being uneducated and untrained. Now, those words in the Greek are very interesting. Y'all, after that first point, I have a slide with some weird-looking words on there. Would y'all throw those up on the screen? These are the Greek words for uneducated and untrained, transliterated into English. Um, so let's do a little bit of a word study this morning for uneducated and untrained. Y'all see anything about that first word? You see like an English word in the middle of it? Got grammar, right? We see grammar. And then there's a prefix on that word that's A. And the prefix A works just like the prefix A in English, right? If I said that I was amoral, what does that mean? Somebody without morals, right? If I was atheist, that means I'm someone without a God in my worldview, 
And if I said I was agnostic, that means I don't know if there's a God or not. I'm without knowing. Um, Gnostic being a, a Greek term, gnosko. So this word, a really rough translation, would be without grammar. My Bible says uneducated. The, the apostles were without grammar. Uneducated people. What about the second word? Doesn't take an idiot to see something about that word, right? They were uneducated and they were untrained. You guys ever heard of doctors without borders? The apostles were idiots without grammar. This is who they were. They were uneducated and they were untrained. And they preached the gospel boldly. And this doesn't add up for the Sanhedrin. They don't understand. Peter and John preached so boldly, but they're idiots without grammar. And they're amazed. They don't understand where the boldness is coming from. This morning, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this good example of confidence that the apostles have. But first, I want to show you the bad example of confidence, and it's in the Sanhedrin. And we're, it's revealed in verse 13 where they had their confidence. And how do we know what their confidence was in? It's how they judged the apostles. Let me put it to you this way. The person who has value or confidence in their athletic ability is normally going to judge people based on their athletic ability. Someone who has confidence in their wealth is probably going to judge somebody else based on their wealth. So where was the Sanhedrin's confidence? It was in their education and their training, their status, their position. They saw themselves as important. They were the only ones who were going to be able to interpret the law of God. And y'all remember, they kind of had a good thing going. And here come the apostles really undermining their whole kind of organization and their power to proclaim the Messiah risen from the grave. In verse 2 of Acts 4, we're told that these people were disturbed by the apostles' message, and we can understand why. They were disturbed by the apostles' message. Y'all, they had their confidence and their boldness in the wrong things. It was in their education and their training. And church, just a word of warning for us. Some of us maybe say, well, I'm not theologically educated, you know, whatever. Y'all, when we have our confidence in the wrong things, it can lead to a very dangerous place. It's a very dangerous road to start down. Because think about it. These were the religious people. These were the ones who understood the Old Testament. But they had confidence in the wrong things, which produced pride in their lives. And when we look up in Acts 4, we realize they are not furthering the mission of God. They're actually persecuting the mission of God. Oh, church, be very careful where your confidence is in. Because if it's not in the things of God, it's a dangerous path. And one day we might look up and we may be the ones who are persecuting the church. Proverbs 17 says it this way. If we, if we have boldness in the wrong things, that can even lead to opposition to God. And y'all, opposition to God, boldness in opposition to God, the Bible does not describe that as boldness. It describes it in a lot of different ways. But two this morning I'll share with you is rebellion and foolishness. To be bold against God, against the mission of God, is rebellion and it's foolishness. Listen to Psalm, or excuse me, Proverbs 17, verses 11 and 12. This is a very vivid passage. You've got to have fun with this. Evildoers foster rebellion against God. The messenger of death will be sent against them. Better to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than to be a fool bent on folly. I saw a couple people look up at that last one. Better to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than to be a fool bent on folly. That's pretty vivid. Okay, I'm just going to leave that there. Have boldness in the wrong things. It can actually lead to a lifestyle where we're opposing the very mission of God, y'all, and that's a very dangerous place for us to be. 
But where was the apostles' boldness? Okay, that's the bad example. Where was the apostles' boldness? It was in the power and the authority of Christ, y'all. And this boldness that the apostles had is a boldness, a confidence like no other. Why? Because it's a confidence that they witnessed and it was a confidence that that was given to them. It was a confidence that they witnessed and it was given to them. Jesus, the resurrected Christ, said in Matthew 28 that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. And then he commanded the disciples to go make disciples. And then he said, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And it was the plan of the Father to give that authority to the apostles for this mission. In Acts 1.8, it's been our cornerstone verse this whole time to say that when Jesus said, I will, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. This was a power and authority that they had witnessed and it was also given to them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And look at Acts 4, verse 8. I know it wasn't my passage assigned this week, but look at Acts 4, 8. When Peter is in the fire, when the persecution comes, and he's standing before the Sanhedrin, it says in Acts 4, 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation, and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. In this moment, Peter and John had not just witnessed the authority of Christ, but they were standing on the authority of Christ as they preached. Jesus in Matthew 28 said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And he was making good on his promise through the power of the Holy Spirit. I said that in verse 13, the Sanhedrin did four things. They observed the confidence of Peter and John. They understood that they were uneducated and untrained. They were amazed, and what's the last one? They began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Ooh, Sanhedrin, so close. So close in your analysis, but so far off. In this moment, Peter and John were not, had not been with Jesus. They were with Jesus because the Father had poured out his presence on these apostles. Sanhedrin didn't realize Jesus was in the room. The power of Christ, the moon of Christ was working through these apostles. They hadn't just been with Jesus. They were with Jesus. Second thing I'll ask this morning, first, where does your boldness come from? Or what is the source of your boldness? The second one is, what does your boldness produce? What does your boldness produce? If we have confidence in anything other than the power of God, anything, athletics, wealth, education, training, whatever it might be, it's going to produce pride in your life. Confidence in anything other than God is going to produce pride in your life, which is going to produce spiritual blindness. And confidence in God is the only thing, y'all. I'll, I'll wait if y'all want to shoot some, out, some examples out here. We'll see if we can find another one. I don't think we can. Confidence in God is the only thing that's going to produce humility in our life. It's the only thing that's actually going to produce humility in our lives. Confidence in self produces pride. And this is what, the, what Jesus called out the Pharisees out for, the Sanhedrin the religious leaders out for during his ministry because they were the ones who were supposed to recognize Jesus. They were the ones who were most best equipped to recognize Jesus. 
and they missed him when he came in his ministry. Jesus said in John 5, 39 and 40, he said, You examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is those very scriptures that testify about me, and yet you are unwilling studying the scriptures to see the Messiah standing before you in the flesh. Church, one of my biggest fears is that I would miss out on a relationship with God because I was too busy being religious. May that never be the case for Connection Church Athens. Confidence in anything else is going to produce pride in our lives, which is going to produce spiritual blindness. But what about confidence in God? It's going to produce humility. It's the only type of boldness, only type of confidence that's actually going to produce humility in our lives. Why? Because the first truth of the gospel, y'all, is very humiliating. Why does confidence in God produce humility? It's because the first truth of the gospel, first things we got to get through our thick skulls before we ever have salvation, is very humiliating. Paul said in Ephesians 2, verse 1, that, who, that uh, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Jesus said in John 8, whoever sins is a slave to sin. I was taught in VBS the ABCs of salvation. Anybody? Let's go. A, admit that you're a sinner. Confidence in God begins with a very humiliating fact. And before the cross, pride is shattered Because the first truth of the gospel is that I am a sinner, I am depraved, I am wretched, I am addicted and in chains, and I cannot pay off my debt and be forgiven and heal myself, but I need a Savior. It's not very attractive when we start talking about it like that, is it? It's humiliating. See, the person who has confidence in self is going to have pride. And so when the pastor starts talking about sin, he doesn't think about his own heart and his own life and how he might have to confess before the Father. You know what we do when we're prideful and we start hearing the pastor talk about sin? We start deflecting it on each other, right? You know, like, oh, man, uh, third row, he, you know, he needs to hear that. Oh, back in the back, oh, you know, I know some of them college kids, they need to hear this. And, y'all, we start to deflect the truth of God's word to other people in our minds. And we don't think about it for ourselves. And as long as sin is someone else's problem, Jesus is going to be somebody else's savior. As long as our sin is somebody else's problem, Jesus will be their savior. Coming to the cross is a humiliating thing. To say, God, I need you to fix me. It's not by my work. It's not me working my way up so that I might be accepted by God. No, it's about him Providing salvation is a gift through us. And that's exactly what Paul continues to say in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Right? It's not about me working my way to God. It's about by me in faith receiving the finished work and the grace of God into my life. And y'all, as a finished product in Christ, as someone who's justified in Christ, there's no room for me to boast. Because I'm his workmanship. We, I know 8 and 9 we talk about a lot in church, but I love verse 10 that says we are his workmanship. Because, y'all, I think for a long time in my life, I started to believe a lie that went something like this, that it was Christ's work that justified me, that saved me, but then it was ultimately my work that sanctified me. That once I get saved, then it's my job. I'm supposed to, you know, by my own power, I'm supposed to conform myself into the image of Christ. Y'all, and that is foolishness. We are his workmanship created new in Christ Jesus and for good works that we might walk in them. 
I'm not Liam's workmanship. If there's anything good in me, if, if I ever do anything worthwhile for the kingdom of God, that is not a source of boasting for me. If I ever have the privilege and the honor of standing bold in the fire and proclaiming Christ and glorifying him, y'all, that's not something that's in me. There is nothing good in me. If I'm ever going to be bold, it's got to come from someone else than me. We are his workmanship. And I think if anybody understood this truth, even before the book of Ephesians was written, it was Peter. Peter would have understood this, I think. And here's why I say that. Let's just think about Peter's story with the Lord from the very beginning. Did Peter apply to the discipleship program? And Jesus was blown away by his resume. And so he, he said, follow me. No. Jesus pursued Peter. Peter was fishing with his brother, and Jesus comes along and says, come follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. And then think about it for three years during Jesus' ministry, walking with the Lord, learning from him, being taught by him, watching him as an example. Peter was in the inner circle of disciples. Jesus did not neglect nine of his disciples, but we know three of them, Peter, James, and John, he took along to, to do certain things. And, and one of those things that Peter got to go along for that the rest of the disciples didn't was the transfiguration. When they went up on a mountain and, and Jesus didn't look like some normal dude like he, like he did to everybody else normal time. No, his glory shone. And we know that Moses and Elijah came down and started talking with Jesus. Peter got to see that. He was convinced of the divinity of Christ. He followed him. He was taught by him. And then in John 13, our record of the Last Supper, Peter, overwhelmed with his love for the Lord and, and wanting to prove himself as someone who's devoted to the Lord, he said this in, in John 13, verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Peter picked a bad night to tell Jesus he would die for. Jesus knew the future. He knew it was going to happen the next day. He said, you'll, you'll die for me? No, dude, before the sun comes up, you're going to deny me three times. And what Jesus said came true. Judas betrayed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus was dragged away by the mob, and Jesus went to several different places Essentially, the mob was just looking for someone to kill him before the Passover. And the first place that they took Jesus was to Caiaphas's house, which incidentally was the same high priest that Peter and John stood in front of in Acts 4. And they took him there, but Peter was not before Caiaphas in Luke 22. No, he was hanging back. And I'm going to read Luke 22, uh, verses 54 through 62. Don't have to turn there this morning. It reads like a novel. So I just encourage you to imagine this scene with me. Transport yourself there, and let's read what happens in Luke 22. Now as they arrested him and led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest, but Peter was following at a distance. After they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a slave woman, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and staring at him, said, This man was with him as well. But he denied it, saying, I do not know him, woman. And a little later, another person saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I'm not. And after about an hour had passed, some other man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Peter said, 
man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Last verse. And he went out and wept bitterly. The Last Supper, Peter says, Lord, I'll die for you. I love you. I will take a bullet for you, Jesus. Whatever you need, I've got you. And Jesus says, hey, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster even crows. And y'all, the next day, it was not Peter taking a bullet for Jesus. It was Jesus going to the cross for Peter after Peter had denied Jesus. Peter walked away. He was weeping bitterly. He let the Lord down. And it was Christ going to the cross for you and for me and for Peter. In Acts 4, y'all, Peter's bold. In Luke 22, he's a coward. Some might say when it mattered most, when the Lord needed him the most, he turned his back on him. And I don't know about you, but I identify with Luke 22, Peter, a little more than I do with Acts 4, Peter. And if that's you this morning, I want to finish the story and let's connect Luke 22 to Acts 4. Peter leaves. He, he, he weeps bitterly. Jesus dies for Peter. Jesus defeats sin and death for Peter. Then after Jesus rises from the grave, he pursues Peter again. And he cooks him breakfast. And he says, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, I, you know I love you. He says, feed my sheep. They do that three times. And then Jesus re-extends the same offer that he extended to him the day he was fishing. He says, come, follow me. I submit to you this morning that Peter in Acts 4 did not stand on his own two feet or on his authority. Peter was not Peter's workmanship from beginning to end. He was the workmanship and the product of the transforming grace of God. And church, if that is to be our story, if we are to stand boldly, we have to surrender to this king defeated sin and death for us. For by grace we have been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. It's Jesus pursuing us when we mess up. It's the times we've been a coward and we've heard the testimony in the name of Jesus, y'all, that he pursues us again. And this grace is what transform us, transforms us, makes us into the image of God so that we might stand boldly and proclaim his name. Peter was not Peter's workmanship. He was the workmanship of God. This incredible grace of God is what makes us bold. Last point this morning. First, what's the source of our boldness? Um, second, what does our boldness produce? And then thirdly, where do you fix your eyes? Peter and John preach the gospel boldly. Let's forward the story along. The Sanhedrin, they don't know what to do, so they send them out of the room, and they get in their little huddle. What are we going to do with these men? So they decide they're going to threaten them. They're going to say, hey, you can't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. I don't want you preaching in the name of Jesus anymore. So they bring them back into the room and they threaten them. And what does Peter and John say? In chapter 4, verse 19, Peter and John answered to them and said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Jesus gave them a mission. It was to live sin, and it was to be witnesses of the resurrection. And so when the Sanhedrin say, stop speaking in his name, they're at a crossroads. Peter and John are bold again. 
They do not fix their eyes on the circumstances. They do not fix their eyes on the possible future of what could happen if we continue to be bold. They didn't look on anything else. They looked at Christ, stood on his word, fixed their eyes on him, and said, we obey God, not you. We can't stop talking about what we've seen and what we've heard. That's what we're going to do. And y'all, this is biblical boldness. It's to have such confidence in our Savior and what he's done for us, that he has created us, he loves us, he's redeemed us, he's empowered us, he's coming back for us, he's my king, I cannot lose. So do what you want with me. Do what you want with me, I don't care. Jesus is my king. He's provided everything I need. So every breath in my lungs is gonna be to glorify his name. This is biblical boldness. And this is what God's called us to do as a church. I don't care what happens to me. I don't care because Jesus has done it all for me and I'm his workmanship. In closing this morning, just very quickly, I want to share a story with you. I've got three points in a poem. Um, and I want to tell you about a guy named Adoniram Judson. And I want to read you a letter he wrote, and it's one of the boldest things I've ever read in my life. Adoniram lived in the early 1800s. He was studying in the United States, and he felt God's call to be a missionary. Um, he fell in love with a girl named Anne Hasseltine, and he wrote her father a letter asking for Anne's hand in marriage um, with the news that he felt called to be a missionary and that as soon as they graduated, which is in a matter of weeks, they were going off to preach the gospel overseas. And this is the letter he wrote to his soon-to-be father-in-law. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? My father-in-law's in the room. Mr. Andy, we didn't have conversations like that, did we? We did not. Fathers, this might strike a chord with y'all especially. The father receives that letter. Can you consent to all this for the glory of God? This is where I'm going, Adoniram said. I love your daughter. So her father, Mr. Hasseltine, that letter actually addressed him Deacon Hasseltine. He was a deacon. He takes it to his buddy. He says, what should I do? And his friend, who had two daughters, said, tie your daughter to the bedpost and tell that boy never to come back. <laughs> That's not what Deacon Hasseltine did. He said, it's up to her. They were married quickly, and then they set sail for India. They spent very little time in India because then they felt God calling them to Burma, which is modern-day Myanmar. And that's where they did most of their ministry. 
Ann and Adoniram started to preach the gospel, and they wanted to have kids. Ann got pregnant, and she gave birth to a stillborn. She got pregnant again, she had a healthy baby boy, and he survived less than a year before he passed away. Same thing happened with their third child. And then Ann got sick, and she passed away. And Adoniram was alone. He remarried, and about two years later, his second wife died. Twelve years into his ministry, he had lost five family members, and he had 18 converts. Adoniram sunk into deep depression. He dug an empty grave and sat by it for days, just wishing God would kill him. He said this in one of his journals, God is a great unknowable to me. I believe in him, but I feel him not. Y'all, that's a moment. That's a crossroads moment. Will we curl up with our monster sticks? Will we give up? Will we run away? Or will we preach the gospel boldly, even in the face of persecution? Adam kept preaching. And he died in Burma. And when he died, it was estimated that there were 100 churches in Burma with 8,000 believers. That is not Adoniram Judgeon's workmanship. Y'all, that's the grace of God using a man who is willing to say, I don't care what happens to me and my family. I just care about the glory of God. Today, it is estimated that there are 2.5 million evangelical Christians in the country. him and a small few missionaries started that movement. Y'all, we, we give honor and praise to athletes, movie stars, musicians in our culture. These are the people that we should honor more than any other created person because they live boldly for Christ. Last week, we had the honor and the privilege of having a missionary come here who's going to an unreached people group in China. Y'all, I pray that this is not his fate with his family and his personal life. But y'all, he's even putting that out there and in God's hands for the name and glory of God. Finally, in closing, just as a point of application, we are responsible. I'm responsible for what God has called Liam to do. You are responsible for what God has called you to do. And I don't know what that is this morning. I don't know. But I want to show you in Scripture that you are empowered to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I will ask you of what God has called you to do the same way that Adoniram asked his soon-to-be father-in-law when he said, Can you consent to all this for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? I want to be this kind of church. I want to be this kind of man, someone who says, I don't care. I don't care what God's calling us. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know where I'm going to be a year from now. But if I have resources and I have breath in my body, I want to give it for his glory. Y'all, this is biblical boldness. Let's pray together. Father God, Lord, we are powerless on our own to live such an incredible life for you. So, God, I pray this morning you would, you would, we would search our hearts, God. Um, this calling that, that you've given us to live sent wouldn't just be for other people. It would be for us. It would be real and personal this morning, God. 
Lord, I pray that as a church, we would identify our next steps. God, what are you calling me to do for your name, for your glory in Athens, Georgia? God, we thank you for your word. And now that we've heard it, Lord, I pray for the strength and the grace to go out this week and apply it for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. And all right, thank you so much for coming this morning. You are dismissed. <laughs>